The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Lady, don't take no shit. Insist on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak less of something worse. Saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, Mercury going direct and leaving us the hell alone, we cover it all. This podcast is based in Oakland, California, the center of the known universe where we are dealing with Rona and Reconstruction. It's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. It's all right. It's all right now. I look right in your eyes, ask how you get so neat. Our guest this week is making his second appearance on the pod. Last time he was here, we talked about his experience becoming the mayor of Stockton, California at the age of 26, becoming the youngest mayor of any major city in American history. He's back to discuss his recently published memoir called The Deeper the Roots, where he details how his hometown raised him, along with a group of dynamic women, his life-changing encounters with Alice Walker, Oprah Winfrey, and Barack Obama, and the challenges of governing in the 21st century. Please, please, please join me in welcoming back to the pod, Michael Tubbs, my homie. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. It always feels good to be home or, oh. or with, with home, people, people oh, I love and support. That's what I'm talking about. Home team, home squad. That's what we do here. Tubbs, I got to ask you, I mean, Lord, you know, the last time we talked, we were in year two of the pandemic. (laughs) I was today years old when I realized that we are in year three of what is now being called quite popularly an endemic, meaning this shit going to be around forever. So I got to ask you, what is your endemic life like? Have you developed any more unique habits live and direct from Miss Rona? Yeah, it's um, it's been saving up. So I got me a little Peloton. So Ooh. I've been doing, and it's so convenient because it's like 20, 30 minutes and it's a, it's hard, but then you're done. It's right in the back. So I've been doing that this year. It's every day, 30 minutes, 20 minutes. So that's been great. Uh, we have a five-month-old now. It is to our half-year-old. So a lot of play dates. We, we are the most play dating people ever. We organize weekends around, all right, what are we doing before nap? Who are we playing with? And who are we playing with after <laughs> <laughs> After that, I, uh, our son has a lot of energy. So those have been my two sort of newish sort of habits. I love it. Um, 
Tell me about the Peloton. Do you have a favorite writer? Yeah, I, just, I mean, I'm still a baby on it, but there's a black dude named Alex. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I like Alex because he's hella extra, but his music is always so good. Nice. And he, like, because you've talked nice to me, you'll get some effort. But when you're, like, yelling at me, that's when I really, like, I'm like, oh, you know? okay, yeah, you're right. I need to kick it up a notch. Like, you can't, <laughs> especially if I don't, I don't like working out. So for me to, like, work out, you have to be a little bit mean. You can't be nice, which is probably a little bit dysfunctional, but you just can't be, if you're nice to me, I'm just going to do what I want. But he's always yelling, like, get up now. Get up. We're going to three heels. And I'm like, okay. I feel like it's a challenge. So I'm really enjoying it. Oh, that is really interesting. You know, we are exactly opposite. I am an avid Peloton writer. Oh, wow. Um, my favorite. Yeah, I got the Peloton, like, right when this shit all started. And it literally <laughs> saved my life. Because I was like... I can't be in these four walls like this all the time. Y'all got me fucked up. So I got me a Peloton. <laughs> it did not become a coat rack. I am a century rider and soon to be, oh, wow. I don't know, maybe a two century rider. And my favorite, you're never going to guess who my favorite instructor is. Who do you think it could be? Uh, all I know is like three. I know Ali. I know Alex. I know Tunde or Tunde. Yeah. So yeah, I started out with all the black instructors because that's how I do. So you do know me. You do. You do know me. Um, I love me some Tunde. She is when I really want to get some work done. Alex, um, I love this brother. He really reminds me of somebody I would have met in the club when I was like 25. So I tend to stay away from that because... <laughs> You know, it stresses me out as a 41-year-old woman now. 40 wonderful, as we are calling it this year. Um, I really liked Hannah. I don't know. I don't be seeing her that much no more. And I love me some Allie, but she do be talking, like, way too much. She be talking. I be trying to turn it off at the end, and she still be talking. I be like, girl, it's too much. I love you. I love you. But all these words are not necessary. I'm dying and can't breathe. <laughs> but my favorite writer, uh, yeah. And I'm black enough to admit this. My favorite instructor is Cody Rigsby. Tell me about Cody. You know, Cody is really interesting. Cody is giving a, you know, they have like little archetypes on Peloton, mm -hmm. if you haven't noticed, right? So, you know, Alex gets the club bangers and maybe that's <laughs> why he gets the unfair handle from me. Because I'm like, mm, I, I quit club banging quite a while ago, my G. I still like to get it in, but not like that, my homie. <laughs> um... But Cody's little archetype is um, gay boy. And the thing I don't love about Cody's archetype is that he's doing a lot of yes, girl, that kind of thing. But his 45-minute rides are fucking excellent. They will work you out, but you won't feel like you have to collapse like Mr. Big once you get off. So uh. just giving you a little news you can use. And he's a big on Britney Spears, which I've grown to love. I <laughs> Are there any new skills that you are now getting a handle on in year three of the pandemic? I mean, we started this thing. People were like growing stuff on their countertops and it was becoming loaves of sourdough bread. People were planting gardens. Folks were like, the world is over and I'm going to learn how to survive on my own. The world has not ended, although it is feeling like it's ending. So mm. what are the, what's the scoop on your pandemic skills? Just in case we actually get deeper into the apocalypse, I got to know what you bring into the table. Yeah, that's a tough question. I think most of my skills re revolve around um, talking and writing. <laughs> and that's emailing. a skill. No, honestly, I've been actually developing a skill 
at working with people I vehemently disagree with on a lot of things on the one thing we agree with. Like, you know mm. what? Like, I'm going to say, let's just focus on this. Mm. And all the crazy, this, this, this. So I've developed a skill around that. And I also think I'm pretty good at getting folks that have a lot of, like, probably too much money to think about how they could put that money to use to make it so that other people have money too. Like, I've been really good at getting people like, oh, look, oh wow, this is great for you. What, are all this, what about all this misery over here? And how do we not just give money to it, but like really think about changing the structural power dynamics that create this? And haven't got a lot of pushback. So I think to your point, everyone's looking at the world and it's like something has to, like something has to give. Like, this mm. is just not sustainable. This is, I mean, even in, in LA where I live, there's been a lot of pearl clutching um, and some of the most affluence part because some of the violence that has plagued sort of South LA and other East LA um, for decades is now going into sort of the more affluent parts. And, and, and I think people are beginning to see that you can't fence your way, you can't build your way, you can't guard your way out of like real oppression and misery that we actually have to solve it. We actually have to fix it. Um, so I think that's my power, getting people to kind of connect the dots and see sort of how all this dysfunction is really in real structural issues that we have to address because the problems just aren't going to disappear. They're only going to get more calcified. You know, this is one of my favorite things about you, Tubbs, is that um, this skill that you identified, right? Like trying to figure out what is the one thing that we can work on together, even if we disagree on like everything else. I actually think is one of the premier skills that our movement needs to learn um, yesterday. <laughs> and, you know, no shade or maybe a little bit of shade. I'm not talking about the Van Jones type of way of doing this. I am talking about a meeting of the minds where we're not um, pimping the fact, right, that we know how to work with people that we don't get along with on many levels. But it's like actually having a strategy and actually moving towards impact. And Tubbs, you are somebody who I think can absolutely stand on the bedrock and say, I did that. Whether it comes to universal basic income, right, or guaranteed income, um, whether it comes to, you know, putting a city on the map that most people didn't really know about unless you lived around here, right? And even then, it was still sketchy. It was like, oh, it's out there. It's that one place out there. Um, you know, Tubbs, let's dive into that a little bit more. Like, what does it take to not come at an approach like that from a perspective of, um, I'm going to be your yes person when everybody else is a no? How do we actually dive in with people who we disagree with on how to get to the values that we might share. What kind of capacities do you have to bring to the table in order to be successful? I think a couple things. The, the best class I ever took was one on negotiations. And they talked about the difference between interests and positions and how sort of one may articulate a position, but that position doesn't tell you anything. It's like, what are the motivations and interests? And it's in the space of interest that you can kind of get to a place where there's a, there's some sort of alignment. And I remember as a 20-year-old hearing that, I'd be like, that's, that's brilliant in trying to approach everything like that. So I think part of it is you have to really care about an issue or care about the people affected by said issue more than you care about your own feelings, which is easy to say, but actually hard to do. Um, but so I think that's part of it. It's like, you know what? I am 
And I think, but and number two, and it's something you talk about in, in your book and organizers talk about always, is that there's no permanent friends, there's no permanent enemies, there's permanent issues. Like you have to really be thinking about, okay, on this issue, on this one thing, on this one step, who can I bring with me on this step? And if they don't make it to step two, that's fine because I need them for this step. And just being very clear. And I, I think that's the other thing, just having a real clarity. So it's not just like, I don't like, like for me to work with someone I disagree with fundamentally on a lot of things, I have to be very clear as to the utility of working with them. Mm-hmm. Like this is actually helping me get to this goal or this is actually going to help me get there. And to your point, part of it was honed when I was mayor of Stockton. When I was mayor of Stockton, my council was four Republicans and two Democrats. Mm-hmm. So for four years, everything we did, I had to at least bring two Republicans over with me. So I just learned... And I also learned sort of when and how to take offense. Because if I wanted to, I could just be offended all every time we met. Because there's, there's, yes, there's so many things would be, to be offended by. <laughs> something would be said. So I had to learn, like, okay, like, how do I dodge, deal, correct, direct, but in a way where folks still feel like, okay, we're working on together on something. And then I also realized that in doing so, I created a space where people felt able to be corrected. So people would ask me like really ridiculous and racist questions, mm-hmm. but expecting to be corrected, not expecting to be coddled, not expecting to say like, oh, you're right, but like, no, actually, this is why this is racist. And I realized that it was there was something about the approach that created the environment where people just felt comfortable asking their ignorant questions, knowing that they were going to get some correction. So, so to answer your question, I think, and concisely, it's one, sort of being really focused on the goal, two, having clarity about the utility of said partnership, and three, being secure enough in yourself, in your values, that you know that, yeah, like, I could, like, I'm not going to change by virtue of this interaction, but maybe this issue I care about will change. And, and, and yeah, but, but I think it, it really comes from sort of having a real focus on the people you're trying to serve and thinking through, okay, like, regardless of how I feel, if they have something my folks need or if they can help me get something my folks need, let me find a way to, to work with and do so while still being true to who I am. Let's dive into your memoir, Tubbs. And I got to say, because I can rib you like this, because <laughs> you can just call me big sis. Yeah, you know I'm saying. <laughs> but, you know, it's not common that we get memoirs from folk who are all of 31 years old. This is not to be ageist at all. It's just to say, typically when we get memoirs and we get in the memoir genre, right? We're getting people who are in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s, and they're looking back over their lifespan and their careers. Um, You wrote a memoir that while I have yet to read it still, I'm so excited to dive into it, but I've done a whole ton of background on your memoir. And I, I do have to say it does feel very much like a deepening um, from the Stockton on My Mind documentary, which was excellent, excellent, excellent. So talk to us a little bit about why memoir right now. Um, Mm. And for people who are listening who are like, he's 31, why I'm finna buy that memoir? You finna buy that memoir because my man got something to say. So talk to us (laughs) a little bit about um, what the motivation and the inspiration was for this book. And also, what do you really hope people are able to take from it? No, no, I think it's a fair question. And, and I'll be a little bit shady and You can say, be shady. You can no, be no, a lot a shady bit, if you want. Bit, Come I, on I through. Love, <laughs> I love my president. But like, 
dreams from my father was written when President Obama was 31 years old. And at that time, all he had, not all he had done, but what he had done was be elected to like the law school newspaper editor, you know, like, so, so, and and, and there was so much there and so much to learn from there. And, And I think for me, I'm obsessed with books. I'm obsessed with memoirs. I spent my entire kind of childhood, adolescence reading memoirs of, of, of folks that really moved, inspired, and, and challenged me. And I think particularly in the moment, the historical moment we're in, and part of it is the age thing, there's not a lot of memoirs told from the perspective of folks who are the children of those impacted by the war on drugs, are the children of those dealing with the carnage, of the children who grew up in the sort of tough on crime, welfare queen, democratic governance of the, the most of the 90s. Like, and I think that, and, or who grew, came up age in 9-11. And so that was part of it, like that perspective and that story. And then for me, I knew I wanted to have a marker because I think oftentimes as, you, as more time goes on, you lose memory or you want to color things or you say things differently because you're maturing as a person. Like, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. And I wanted this not to be a political memoir, but to be like just a real kind of story of what it was like to govern one's hometown while in their 20s. Like, mm-hmm. what, what was it like? to be dealing with police reform while taking collect calls from your dad who's in prison? Like, what was it like sort of meeting with folks who were allegedly and actively shooting and causing harm in community while still trying to find the person who murdered your cousin while being in charge of the police department and detectives? And I, and I, I thought that was just, there was so much richness there that I wanted to record while it was happening. And then the last thing, or the last two things is that sort of, also, governing in the age of Trump was like some crazy stuff. Like yeah. it was just such a weird dystopian That's right. place. And, and so I wanted to make sure I recorded that. And then when our son was born, I realized that it's kind of selfish in me, but I realized, and partly from the documentary, that so much of what people know about my mom and my dad are based off like my perceptions and mm-hmm. my experiences, which isn't their entire truth or their entire story. And I realized as a parent, there'll be some things my son would, and daughter would disagree with, that, that there'll be some things that, that don't make sense to them. And I just wanted to make sure that I was able to tell in my voice, like, here's who I was before you were here. And hopefully this helps you make sense of the crazy upbringing you'll, you'll have. And then lastly, I hope what people take from it is number one, just rejecting this myth of exceptionalism. I went to, I, I, I did my best in the memoir to, to weave policy with personal and to really show that it's not about one person being smart and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, but it's really about a, a system, an environment, a set of policy choices, a set of communal values that create the conditions that make sort of stories like mine very unlikely. And number two, the fact that everyone has to do something. Like, like, it looks inevitable now, but there's nothing in the first four chapters that suggests that I would be a mayor, that I'd be leading a conversation on guaranteed income. There was like, like a poor black kid with a teenage mother in Stockton, California, um, and the poor side of Stockton, California. Um, so I wanted people to understand that. And then lastly, I wanted people to know the importance of telling their, like, Owning your story, I, I think oftentimes, particularly stories of Black people or stories that have some trauma or have some pain, 
they become fetishized and become just focused on that. And I wanted to let people know, like, I appreciate the HBO documentary, but that was one cameraman's view of my community, one cameraman's interpretation. I wanted to really kind of own the story myself and say, no, if I'm going to write my story, this is what it's going to be about. And this is what we're going to talk about. I love this. You know, I love that you brought up too that writing such a personal book is really a daunting task. I don't think people understand what it takes, right, to put your story out into the world. I mean, I definitely had that experience when I was writing my book. (laughs) You know, you wonder, like, how are people going to receive this, especially the people that are closest to you, and especially when some of your story is their story too. So, you know, when I was prepping for this conversation, I was thinking about um, Queen Sugar and, you know, those episodes in this past season where Nova puts her book out and it's, you know, stories about her family (laughs) that they didn't necessarily want out in the streets. But she was like, it's important for learning. It's important for healing. And it's important for other people to understand that our story is their story. Mm. How is your family responding to this book? I read in an an interview that you did that your mom (laughs) hadn't hadn't read it, but that she had just started to listen to the audio book. I'm just curious, has there been any update in that story? And how's, how's she feeling about it now? Yeah, I, uh, so she listened to it, um, an audio book, and she, she, my mom is short. She's not verbose like me. She's very direct, though. And she said, that was good, period. It's going to help and inspire a lot of people. Yeah. But then there's a conversation she had with a reporter that t- talked about some of the interests behind her position of not wanting to read the book. And for her, she was like, I just have been so blessed to have moved on in my life that I don't want to be reminded of like the pain and the trauma and the shame and the difficulty of sort of like I don't like that's that's not a happy place for me. Like I don't I don't it's not a place where I go to get strength. That's a place where I go, I don't I don't want to go to that place anymore. And that makes so much more sense because it's one thing as a child to be like, but it's one thing to be like, like I can only imagine if that was me parenting my kids, I would hate to re- remember all the times I felt inadequate, all the times I didn't have enough, all the times I wasn't perfect, all the times I messed up, all the times I lashed out when I shouldn't have, That's et cetera. Right. So, but then my my grandma, she's very religious and very short-spoken as well. And she said, it's a testimony. God is faithful. And that, was her, that, that, was, her, that was her summary. And then my aunt, she was, um, oh, I, this is so great. I loved it. It was good. I was crying. But funny story, one time when the book first came out, my mom would have my aunt read it out loud to her and my grandma on three-way like every <laughs> every day uh, for like two days. And I love just, that. They, but they could never get through it because they would stop every sentence and disagree or laugh or be like, oh, he left this part out. Or, I bet you're not going to say this. <laughs> and then it just took them forever. <laughs> so that's when my mom decided to get the audio book. But no, I think to, to your point, it was... That was the most difficult part was realizing that, especially being so young, so many of the, not characters, but real people are going to be around. They're here. They they have to interact. They still have to go to work. They have to deal with sort of, with all the attention on the book, they have to deal with sort of people's perceptions of them based off, again, a, a narrative, but an imperfect one because it's, it's not a 360 view. It's just a, it's a Michael Tubbs view. That's right. um, so I did my best to be, to be fair and balanced, but that was something I was really 
really thinking about while riding it. Like, uh, I don't want to do anything that causes sort of harm to anyone or, or, or causes like grief or, or changes how people are viewed. Well, I, for one, am very glad that you wrote this. And as my grandma would say, to God be the glory. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So um, you're getting ready to launch something pretty special very soon. Can you give us a little sneak peek? Yeah, we are going to launch an initiative called End Poverty in California. And it Come sounds through. ambitious and audacious, but and then honestly, we talked a little bit about this on the last podcast when you were asking me like what I was I thinking of, et cetera, et cetera. And it was still germinating in, in, in my head then. But since then, I decided that with all the attention, with the book, with sort of the access and influence, it makes no sense if there's nothing done with it. And mm-hmm. California just has too many resources, has too many Democrats, and has too many people living in poverty. So... I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't see how we can end poverty in the country if we can't do it in the mo in, in California. <laughs> like if the people of California, are like, nah, we, in the we don't. The fifth largest <laughs> economy in the world. If we can't do it here, y'all can't do it nowhere else. Okay, yeah, so so that and, and, and a part of it's really kind of for all my friends who are elected to really call the question. Like I'm, I'm good to kick it with. I love to have wine with y'all. I love to like. I'm happy to have conversations, have a good time. But I'm also about. Work. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. about business. Like to be that's my right. friend, you have to be on team in poverty. Like, that's, like right. that's what it is. And I realized, sort of, in losing re-election, I it really clarified what I was willing to lose for. Like, what are the principles and things I was willing to be like, even if I'm wrong, even if people are upset, even people, even if I lose, if it cost me something, I'm writing for that. And one of those things is ending poverty. I just am more resolute than ever that it's it's so unnecessary. We've seen how deadly, like. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but it's a pandemic exacerbated by poverty. If you look at sort of the early days of the pandemic where sort of, or even now the types of the essential workers, where is it spread, the type of community it's spread, it's spread in communities that can't afford housing. So folks living three generations on top of each other. It's spread in, in, in workplaces that aren't unionized or, or in workplaces that don't have really good, like there's so much in this recent couple of years that really illustrate to me that the real pandemic in our country is poverty and the pernicious nature of it. And people think like poverty is just them them poor people, but the majority of Californians can afford rent or a house in California. So I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about the majority of people in this state. And what can we do to make sure that opportunity is broadly shared? Um, So super ambitious. It's going to be a mixture of pilots and policy and advocacy and narrative strategy and and media and connecting with folks like you, um, with the National Domestic Workers and, and, and Black Futures. Um, we're talking with carings across generations in a couple of days, actually, to you think better. about. Sort of, <laughs> so, like, <laughs> just really, because the thing is, there's already a lot of people in the fight. So, I think our what I want to do is just provide extra firepower and, and, and extra sort of quote unquote credibility in the circles where people may privilege my voice more so than other voices I've been doing this work for a while. Mm. You know, Last time we talked, Tubbs, you were in the transition from public official to private citizen. I want to know how that's going. I want to know what you're learning. But also, you got any plans to run for public office again? Yeah, well, I love being a, um, <laughs> I love, love, love being a private citizen. I get why 
the most talented people and brilliant people I know, like you and others, are like, mm, I'm not sure if I'm a run for office. We're not fucking with it. Don't call, don't write, don't text, yeah, don't email. I, I, Leave me alone. I, I get it. And I, I think I've, um, I'm a happier person. I'm a, I'm a healthier person. Because I think we also have to have a conversation about how we really expect our public officials to be abused and be that's okay true. with it and how that's, that's just true. not healthy. That's right. Um, you could disagree, but like the, the level of vitriol and, oh. and, and lies, it's just not healthy. So I, I'm very happy. I've, I've found sort of a bunch of different interests and passions I could really pursue now in a way I couldn't when I was a public official. Um, but I am young, so I won't say ever. <laughs> I, I will say, I told my congressman and them yes, last week, I'm not running for that seat. I'm so I think as every as seats they come are really up, running like, through the list, huh? Yeah, like... I'm like no, 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 no. Right. Um, but eventually, if there's an office that makes sense, I would seriously consider it. But it would have to be after my family. Like, and I'll shut up after this. But the scariest thing about losing election was just how financially insecure we were because I was the mayor of Stockton, and before that, I was a teacher and a city yeah. council person, and that was my entire 20s. So there was no real savings. We had just a house. We just got married. We just have any, any any money. And I told Anna, I was like, I don't want to. I, I I think there's a lot of ways to do public service. And if I'm in elected office again, it will be after we have a stronger foundation, so that our kids and like our our we're not depending on the whims of voters about whether we're going to eat or whether we got childcare or what. like. I just refuse to put. I love the people. But not that much. I refuse to put myself in a situation <laughs> where that's how we got to eat. So No need to be a martyr for the people. We don't believe in that. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't going to do this week. I ain't had a list last week, but I got a list this week, child. So let's go. Number one, former coach sues the NFL for racial discrimination. Fancy that. So big news this week is we learned that former head coach for the Miami Dolphins sues the NFL and three of its teams for racism in their hiring practices alongside other forms of racial discrimination. Now, it's a bombshell, folks, although not surprising. I mean, our brother Colin Kaepernick already told us years ago that the NFL is modern day slavery. Now, the coach in question is former coach for the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores, one of the only black coaches in the league. And now there is only one. And he alleges that the Denver Broncos and the New York Giants engaged in racist discrimination in their hiring practices and that he was unfairly fired by the Miami Dolphins after refusing to do shit that's illegal, like purposely throwing games and skirting the rules when it came to hiring and recruitment. Now, the NFL and the teams are denying that any of this happened. But listen, y'all got one black coach in the entire league. The fuck you mean you ain't racist? Uh, Now, I mean, we could get further into the details of all this nonsense, but I don't even like football like that, number one. And number two, I don't really fuck with the NFL like that. So I'm giving you what you gonna get. Let me say this, though, while we're on the subject. The NFL needs to feel this fire. Now, I know for some of you sports fanatics, you finna watch the upcoming Super Bowl regardless of whether or not the NFL is racist. I hear you. I was never into the shit, but far be it from me to deny you your pleasure, even if it does come at a cost to the players, but I digress. I do want to say this. 
I still have big feelings about Jay-Z's partnership with them, given all the shit that's gone down and keeps going down. Now, literally, nigga, you keep bringing black people to the slave auction to make money off the slaves. I feel away. But go off. Now, I love me some Mary J, and I'm a catcher on the next verses, but I ain't finna watch no Super Bowl, honey. Now, besides, you already heard my unpopular opinion about that. So let's go on and keep it moving. <laughs> Other things Lady just ain't gonna do this week. Whoopi Goldberg being suspended from The View for two weeks over her comments about the Holocaust. Okay, so this has been nagging at me, but before I tell you why, let me tell you what happened. This week, Whoopi Goldberg was suspended for two weeks from the daytime talk show The View after she made comments during a discussion on the show that the Holocaust was not about race. It was about man's inhumanity to man. Now, when one of her co-hosts challenged her on it, and asserted that it was indeed about white supremacy, Whoopi said it was white people fighting white people, so go on and fight amongst yourselves. 48 hours later, even though she apologized for her comments and did the whole thing where she met with the ADL for learning, then she learned and then she apologized for her comments and had a better understanding of where she went wrong, the higher-ups at ABC still put her ass on ice for two weeks. Now, okay, 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 okay. So there's a few things bothering me about this, especially as a black woman who was raised Jewish. Yep, that's me. Number one, yes, we are in a time that is very, very scary. Just two weeks ago, a congregation at a synagogue was taken hostage and the news outlets barely reported about it. There has been increased anti-Semitism, and that is absolutely a function of white nationalism in particular, which has as a core component, white supremacy. But there's some stuff that just is not sitting right with me, and it includes this. Now, number one, The View had punk-ass Meghan McCain on there for years, talking a lot of dumb shit about all kinds of things, including basically making hella racist statements. And she ain't never missed a day she didn't want to miss, honey. She refused to apologize about basically fucking everything. But Whoopi gets suspended for two weeks after she apologized and actually did take the time to learn about where she was wrong? I mean, man, y'all fucking tried it. But here's the other thing, and it didn't really crystallize for me until I was watching Don Lemon the other night. Shout out to Don. What's up, homie? There's a larger story here about how we fight back against anti-Semitism and about what gets in the way. Now, Whoopi knows, and I know, and hopefully you know, that not all Jewish people are white. Now, can we understand, though, why Whoopi would have said that? We are all taught that the Holocaust was the Nazis putting Jewish people in gas chambers and making folks work in concentration camps, and that the way that they did that was by separating people based on their perceived inferiority and coming up with shit abstractly to make them inferior. And yes, that's how isms work. Sexism, fascism, racism, heterosexism, all that. The Nazis were a white nationalist movement, so we know they were white. And the stories we hear of Holocaust victims and survivors are often the stories of those who present as white in this context. And I don't want to get into a whole conversation about whether or not Jewish people as a whole are non-white because it's not the fucking point. And we know all Jews are not a monolith. The point is something that Brother Cornell West said last night on Don Lemon's show, which is that Jewish people in this country who are not phenotypically of color 
are allured by the promise of assimilation into the dominant group, which is white people. And when power is so unevenly distributed, we create hierarchies amongst those who lack the power of the dominant group. Now, in some cases, we look for opportunities to be powerful like the dominant group, and we do so often at the expense of others who cannot pass. And as a Black woman who was raised Jewish, I'm clear that not all Jewish people are white, but let's flip the fucking question here. As white nationalism grows in this country, what are Jewish people who can pass as white doing to ally with other dominated groups who cannot? Whoopi did not deny the existence of the Holocaust. She incorrectly discussed it as not being about race, but frankly, race is about creating social constructs, often based on phenotype, that distribute power away from the group with the phenotype that has been deemed unacceptable. Jewish people have, throughout the history of this country, been assigned characteristics that are deemed undesirable by the dominant group. Whoopi did not spew conspiracy theories about Jewish people secretly running the world. She made a clumsy mistake based on a lack of depth of understanding about race, racism, and history. But the punishment does not fit the offense. And I fucking feel a way that this black woman who was actually accountable is being treated more harshly than the white woman who refused accountability at every turn. I feel a way about the ways in which black people are often held to an uneven standard of allegiance that isn't required of, say, the ADL. And I say that as somebody who's been attacked by the ADL. And I'm fucking Jewish. So. Why do black people have to prove that they're not anti-Semitic, but the same is not required of Jewish people who can pass as white to prove that they're not racist? And in the same way, there was an outcry about this unfortunate series of events. Will there be the same energy for renewed relationship building between and amongst black and Jewish communities during an era where white nationalism is on the rise? Signed, a black woman who was raised Jewish and still experienced plenty of racist bullshit in her own family. White people who aren't Jewish aren't the only ones who need to reject white supremacy. That's that on that. Let's tune in to things that Lady does love this week. Now, here's what we want more of this week, honey. <laughs> Number one, and just like that. So, y'all... Carrie and Miranda switched it up. And I just have to say, this episode was so lovely. It's probably one of my favorites of the entire season. Now, skip forward if you don't want spoilers, honey, because that's exactly what Lady Finna do right here. Okay? I'm going to wait. Okay, here we go. So here's some stuff that stood out to me about this episode. Now, first off, I can so relate. <laughs> I can so relate to dating after a relationship that was meaningful and ended. Child, me and my ex talk about all this shit all the time, especially about how fucking weird it is to date after being in a long ass relationship and how fucking weird it is to be in the streets when you ain't been in the streets for hell along. So I could really relate to sis on this one. And unless you feel like a va va voom for someone, that first physical contact after a relationship is just fucking awkward and hard. And they perfectly captured that. Charlotte's story is getting on my nerves this season, but bravo to her for being bat mitzvah. And the part of the storyline that I'm super into, though, 
is when Miranda tells Carrie she going to Los Angeles to be with Che, who has just landed a pilot deal in Hollywood and does some weird ass, but also kind of endearing type of shit where she announces it, but doesn't actually tell Miranda anything ahead of time. It was kind of weird. Now, I was holding my breath for Che to be a fuckboy and be like, you know, baby, I just got to see what's out there for me. But because I correctly called it, Che is giving us true 90s butch and has invited Miranda along because, of course, they're now in love. Bring on the U-Haul in the couch, honey. <laughs> but here's what's worth talking about. This was an excellent throwback to the original series. And for those of you who were not super fans like me, this was a play off the original storyline in the last season of the show where Carrie falls in love with the Russian artist Alexander Petrovsky. And he lands a gig in Paris and asks her to come. And she goes for love. And her friend, Miranda, was all up in her damn feelings. Like, how you just go up and move to Paris with some man you barely know? And Carrie went bad on her and told her that she wasn't going to stay in New York just because it was comfortable for Miranda. Well, roles are reversed this time around. And now Miranda's moving to L.A. for love. And Carrie's all up in her feelings and being judgmental and true to form. Carrie being in her own world most of the time doesn't realize how hypocritical she's being. Miranda, too, because she was the one who initially was judgmental when the shit was the other way around. Now, what I love, though, is that this is really the dynamic between girlfriends who fucking love each other. We get protective of each other, and sometimes we project our own shit onto our girlfriends. Also, thank God, finally, Miranda, her hair, honey, it's back to red, and we are here for it. Because that gray wig she was wearing was fucking tragic. And Lady for One is glad to see it go. But here's where the plot twist comes in. We get a tiny little taste that there might just be a little tiny bit of spark between Carrie and the super hot podcast producer, Franklin. And when Che up and bounces without much warning, leaving their podcast for bust, Franklin pops at Carrie to go solo and do her own podcast. And the podcast is a nod to the original, entitled Sex and the City. But baby, let me tell you how I squealed when they both got in the elevator. Carrie for the win. Now, I knew you had it in you, girl. That's what the fuck I'm talking about. And also, on the eve of the day that shall not be named, yes, 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 for romance and love that is more than likely on the horizon. I didn't spoil all of it, y'all. So if you haven't watched it yet, tune in because this episode has given us some of that old thing back. And Lady is 100% here for it. Now, speaking of here for it, Mercury is finally, finally, finally out of retrograde and Venus is too. And that means communication gets clearer. The fog lifts. We can come out of hiding and, and, and our love relationships come into focus. Now, I got to tell y'all, Mercury in retrograde had me in a fucking headlock and Venus in retrograde was like, hold up, Mercury, hold my beer. <laughs> but I'll say this. In the wake of Mercury in retrograde, I am doing all kinds of reflection about what's next for life and love, taking one step forward and sometimes three steps back. Now, if you're like me, Mercury stationing direct is making things clear, including where you need to get your shit all the way together in life. And Venus stationing direct is bringing clarity to your relationships. And so on the eve of that unfortunate cultural holiday called Valentine's Day, 
What I do hope these stationing directs are bringing you live and direct is a plea to love on yourself. Now, one thing I'm learning in this period is all the things that get in the way of love for me. Woo, child. I have all these stories about all sorts of things. And all of it is trying to protect myself from getting hurt. But here's the thing. Love isn't just puppies and flowers, bunnies and rainbows. Love is hard work. And it's the hard work of excavating all that shit that you're holding on to that hurts you at some point and sorting through the debris to figure out, okay, what's yours and what's theirs? Mm. What's yours is what you have to sit with because you can't do anything about what somebody else is doing, child. But as my favorite read from CoStar says, it's natural to wince when looking at yourself in a well-aimed mirror. It's brave to keep on looking. We love, love, love to see it. I loved having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I will say right here to you publicly, when you decide to run, I'm ready to run too, boo. So holler at your girl when you're ready to run a play. You know what I mean? Well, do. Thank you. Yeah, I mean. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tell the people where they can find you on the socials and where they can follow this exciting project. Yeah, you can find me at Michael D. Tubbs on Instagram or Twitter. And you can follow Epic at inpovertyandska.org. And I'm typing in my computer to make sure that's accurate. Let's <laughs> yes, see. please. Check the link now. Check the link. Let's see. Yep. Inpovertyandca.org. Beautiful. And where can people find your book? You can find my book anywhere books are sold, particularly independent and Black-owned bookstores. Hit up Marcus Books. Go talk to Miss Blanche and ask her for the deeper the roots. Tell her Garza sent you, honey. Absolutely. <laughs> That's it for Lady Don't Take No. But I will be back here every single Friday morning to accompany you where there's a chance you might be commuting again. We appreciate you joining us and please let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. On Facebook, Meta, whatever the fuck it is, we are at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. Now, we post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And please give a special shout out to our social media maven, Jahari Farrar, for making sure that people get what they need from our socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is by Latirix. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me, I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, the NFL been fucking racist, but shout out to Brian Flores and give thanks to Colin Kaepernick for paving the way for more people to be brave. Now, maybe Jay will join and use his massive platform to force some real changes and not just make money off it. Whoopi was wrong, but not as wrong as white supremacy. And let's make sure we're having the right conversation about whiteness 
so that we can have a real conversation about the united front we need to fight it. Shout out to And Just Like That for giving us some of that old thing back and sending you my thoughts and prayers to keep being brave and looking into that well-aimed mirror and not looking away. That's right. <laughs> I said it because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit. don't respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak unless it's something worse. Singing don't play. The girl take herself so serious. People stay curious. Got a natural way. Her hips way furious. Let her luxurious. Love y'all.